Welcome to Thoughts on Record, official podcast of the Ottawa Institute of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Each episode, we explore topics of interest to clinicians and mental health consumers from a cognitive behavioral perspective. I'm your host, Dr. P. Kelly. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. John Berger is an award-winning magazine writer, fortune contributor, and author of Datanomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. A former senior writer at Fortune and Money, John was named to Oazon Network's list of power players in technology business media. His work has also appeared in Barron's, Bloomberg, Business Week, New York Magazine, Time, The Daily Mail, The New York Post, and The Washington Post. John is a familiar face and voice on television and radio, having made guest appearances on ABC's Good Morning America, BBC World Service, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and Fox News. A graduate of Brown University, John lives with his family in Larchmont, New York. All right, Mr. John Berger, welcome to Thoughts on Record. How are you doing today? Hey, Pete. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Excellent. Well, John, um, I'm really, really delighted to have you on the podcast today. The emotional perils of dating, in particular online dating, and especially during COVID, definitely rank near the top of the list with respect to psychosocial themes that I might touch upon with clients in a given week. I'm really looking forward to getting sort of more of a data-driven sense of some of the current dynamics around uh, dating that single people currently have to navigate and flowing from that, what strategies might be most effective for, for navigating these challenges. So I, I thought, John, before we, you know, we dive into your new book, Make Your Move, just for a bit of context, can you give a little bit of a summary of some of the major conclusions of your previous book on this topic, uh, Datanomics? Yeah, I, I can do that. Would also be helpful if I talked a little bit, a bit about how a Fortune magazine writer ends up writing books about dating, which is kind of all tied into the same thing. Absolutely. Go for it. Let's, let's get the okay. origin story out there. Yeah, there we go. The or, I like it. Um, so as I hinted, I, I, I used to write about much more boring stuff when I was at Fortune, oil and gas, investing, stuff like that. Um, but... I couldn't help but notice that the like among the editorial staff at Fortune, most of the guys were either married like myself or involved in long-term relationships, whereas the women who I think I can honestly say had more going for them dating-wise than we guys did, they were disproportionately single. Um, and they were just single. The ones I was friends with had these like horrendous dating histories and dating stories that they would share with me. And I, you know, between people I knew at work and some of my wife and our friends from, you know, just regular life, I, I couldn't figure out why dating seems so much harder for women than for men. And, and that kind of led to my first book, Datanomics. And the first book explored how lopsided gender ratios among the college educated were affecting post-college dating. So the, the, the Cliff Notes version is that for the past 20, 30 years, we've had essentially one third more women than men graduate from college in the US. And it's not just a US thing, it's basically every Western country. And obviously, this imbalance wouldn't matter so much if we were all more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry, but it turns out none of us are particularly open-minded. So we've what we've ended up with is two very distinct dating pools, kind of a blue-collar dating pool that has too many men, 
and a white collar dating pool that has too many women. And the big theme of my first book, Datanomics, was that the rise of the hookup culture and the declining marriage rates and rising divorce rates among the college educated have nothing to do with porn or Facebook or anything else that modern scolds like to blame. It's largely to do with these lopsided sex ratios because all the, all the social science on sex ratio shows that when men are in undersupply or women in oversupply, depending upon your perspective, um, when, when men are in undersupply, the dating culture tends to be less monogamous, more sexualized, uh, and women are more likely to be treated as sex objects. That's really interesting. Now, what year was Datanomics? It came out in 2015. And how has that trend uh, held up over time? And have you had any additional insights since the publishing of that book that it maybe informed that pattern a little, a little bit or, or some additional insights around what's going on? I mean, the, the, the sex ratios in higher education are the same now as they were, were then. I mean, I do have some regrets about the way I approached the first book, Datanomics. I mean, I was, um, honestly, in terms of the, like the takeaways and the, and the lessons from the book, I was much more interested in solving the boy problem in public education than I was the dating problem for educated women. And I, in hindsight, that was a mistake because women would show up at my book events saying, look, I, I'm glad to know this is not all in my head. Um, now I have something I can tell my mom or my married friends when they harass me about why I'm still single, but now tell me what to do. And if you read the first book, Datanomics, there was a little bit of an advice, but it wasn't really wasn't really my goal. I didn't want to be the love doctor. Like I, I, I had it in my head that here I'm this like super, I had a very snooty view towards the whole self-help genre. And I didn't want to be the love doctor. And I, as I said, intellectually, I was more interested in solving the boy problem in education than I was helping women with their dating woes. So interestingly enough, the subtitle of your new book, Make Your Move, the subtitle is The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge. Uh, why, why is this the subtitle of the book? Well, if you ever write your own book, Pete, you'll discover that you have no control over your titles. <laughs> no, but, but the, uh, the, 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 the gist of it is that um, I, I'm trying to sort of the, the, make your move argues that women women who are willing to make the first move with men. And by women, I mean hetero marriage-minded women. I'm not, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I, I you know, people who, die, who buy dating books tend to be, uh, you know, uh, single marriage-minded uh, hetero women. So I'm just probably should put that out there. But, but my, my goal with the book is to make this argument that, women who are willing to make the first move with men have a huge advantage over other women who kind of sit back and wait and wait and wait to be courted by men. 
And part of it is my belief that whoever makes the first move has a strategic advantage regardless of gender. And part of it is, is I think guys nowadays are, are feeling gun shy and they're not sure what kind of a first move is okay and what kind of a first move is creepy. So women who are willing to do kind of a total end round around this problem and go after the men of their choice while other women wait for the men of their choice to do something about it, I just think have this big advantage. Yeah, there's lots to unpack there from the, uh, from the book. And I want to ask you about the suitor's advantage in just a moment. John, at a macro level, based on your research and interviews, what do you think are some of the core self-defeating perceptions that men and women have been laboring under with respect to dating? You touched on a few of them, uh, I believe, but how are men and women maybe looking past each other a little bit in the, uh, in the dating sphere, leading to an inability to connect in, in a way that the, perhaps they, they would like to? Well, so, so here's something that you as a guy, you can either tell me I'm crazy or tell me I'm, I'm spot on. So, so whenever I'm out like on d doing book talks or on the lecture circuit, talking about this kind of stuff, one of the points I always make is that I, I have this point that men like women who like them. Whenever I, I say this on the lecture circuit, the men are always in the audience nodding in unison. The women look at me like I'm freaking crazy because they have been taught from friends, peers, and most of all, from all these insane dating books that have been written over the past 20 years, like the rules and ignore the guy, get the guy. They've been taught that men like nothing more than having their advances rebuffed. And the um, men like working for it. And that, that the moment you show too much interest in a guy, he will become less interested in you. And, and I'm sure that there are some guys out there who behave this way. But, you know, we can talk about this. I, I do not think this is, a, this is a majority of men. I think this is an extreme minority of men, particularly now. I mean, maybe in my... You know, my dad is 98. I don't know what dating was like for my dad when he was 21. But um, even if it was like that now, I'm certain it is not like that now, not like that today. Um, so I, I believe this is the, we're, we're kind of like dating is, the rest of society has moved, is slowly moving into kind of a more modernized way of thinking. Yet when it comes to dating, we're still stuck in these old gender rules and gender norms that really have nothing to do with the way society operates nowadays. No, that certainly stands up for, you know, with, if I reflect on conversations that I've had with male clients uh, who, who are representative of males in general, I think. Most men I know in general are delighted to have female attention and they're certainly not going to rebuff it in hopes of getting more vigorous attempts at getting their attention. They're, they're probably simply just happy to have any kind of attention thrown their way. And they don't like the woman less because she likes them. Right. But, but, but yet, if you talk to women, that's what, the, that's what they've been taught. That's what they've been taught by books like The Rules and, and all their copycats. They've been taught that the, that the way to a, to a man's heart is by pretending you don't like him. And a lot of the messaging in these in these books 
you know, it all, it all boils down to a very fancy version of playing hard to get. And the messaging in these books kind of boils down to not interested means keep trying. Now, again, my dad's 98, maybe in 1950 when he was dating or 40. Yeah, maybe that worked. I, I have no idea. But not interested means keep trying does not work in 2021 because I mean, us guys may not be learning the messages and the lessons of Me Too as well as well or as quickly as we should, but I, I really believe that the majority of single men understand that if a woman seems disinterested, you're talking to her at a party, she doesn't seem to want to you know, carry on the conversation and continue the conversation, the correct takeaway is not to assume that she's playing hard to get. The correct takeaway is to leave her alone, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, and 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 I, and I think I, I think this is where people's signals get crossed. Is there not a male analog to the rules where basically you know one of the keys to success is allegedly to you know to insult a woman? You'd go up to her and say, "Oh, geez, you picked up the wrong shoes with that dress," or something like that. I feel like it's a very famous book. The name's escaping me at the moment. Am I correct in this? So if you, I mean, I, I don't know if this is what you're thinking of, but if you, if you read my first book, Datanomics, there is a, an anecdote like that in which there's a, a guy, a Wall Street guy who, who basically who told me that his like favorite way of getting women into bed was um, like to be out like at an outdoor cafe and he would basically he would be engaged in people watching with the women walking by. And if he demeaned or diminished the women walking by saying, oh, who picked out that dress for her? Or I can't believe she wore that. That seemed to kind of endear him to his date. Yeah, and for him, this was like strictly a, like pickup artistry. It wasn't really about finding a life partner. Um, I... I, I'm certainly not advocating that, but yeah, I think that goes on. Yeah. It sounds like a very counterintuitive strategy to me, especially if someone's taking sort of a values driven approach to dating. I'm not sure how many men would want to project themselves in that particular light. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I think what the guy I interviewed for Datanomics was in a cruel way, what he was tapping into was, was the fact that the dating market had become difficult and competitive for educated women, kind of pitting young college grad women against each other. And he was taking advantage of that. You mentioned this before. A lot of men are not really sure about how much they can engage if they are interested, right? So, and there's a perception that maybe, you know, there's ideas of consent and things like that. There's some very interesting things in your book around this where, say, like in the workplace, women would like to work with enlightened men who are progressive, quote unquote, woke, who, you know, attuned to boundaries, that sort of thing. That's perhaps not quite so much preferred in the context of a romantic relationship where they might prefer a bit more assertiveness. A guy not necessarily asking for permission to give a kiss. He's supposed to sort of perhaps intuit that the moment is right to give that kiss. Uh, did I interpret that correctly, what you had written there? Yeah, no, no, that that's that's a very kind of, I mean, I, I think we're like, this current moment is complicated. 
I think we're in a transitional time, and I believe these conversations will be easier to have five years from now than they are now. But we're kind of like we're kind of transitioning from one mindset to another, and and I definitely think guys are are very unsure about what's okay and what's not okay, and then the the workplace. I mean, I, I mean, as you know, having read the book, that the workplace is my actually favorite place for singles to meet each other because um, you already know each other. And like, if you've, if you've worked with somebody for six months and you've seen them at their best and their worst, it, I mean, like, and if you are like them and are attracted to them, I mean, you're almost halfway there, right? Like, I mean, you're, I mean, it's like Jim and Pam on the office. I mean, even before their first date, they, they might as well have been together because they had, they already knew that they were compatible. Um, but it's complicated nowadays. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I think this is yet another reason why women have an advantage because guys aren't worried about being physically harmed in a dating situation. I mean, I mean, some are, I'm sure. If a woman touches a guy, she's not going to be scared in the same, or he's not going to be scared in the same way a woman might. Um, I, I just think it's easier for a woman to make a first move with a guy in this current environment. Now, my hope is that if we have this conversation again in five years, we'll, we'll have reached some kind of an equilibrium in which, in which all this will be sorted out. But we're just in kind of a funny time right now in which guys just aren't sure what's okay and what's not okay. And as a result of that, women who are assertive and willing to make the first move just have this enormous advantage over kind of old fashioned women who are kind of waiting for the scenarios that led their older sisters or their moms to find their men. No, I totally agree that this is a time of transition. And I have to say, like, I mean, I find this conversation on some level kind of uncomfortable, not because of our interpersonal dynamic, but just because of, you know, there's some uncomfortable topics that we have to navigate where there's a lot of nuance and the difference between something being one thing or another can often boil down to a very small thing, but very small things that make big differences. Yeah. So so there's a a guy I interviewed for the book who told me this first date story about how he tried to hold his, his date's hand. He tried to reach out to hold her hand during her first date. And when he called her or maybe te- I think it was texted her about a second date. She said that, that he missed, um, you know, physical cues and held her, tried to hold her hand when she wasn't comfortable with it. And for him, you know, his reaction was, I, I wish you would, I mean, just told me like, like, I mean, like, I mean, I mean, Human beings are not mind readers. And this isn't just about men, this is women as well. Like I, and men and women in dating contexts can't be expected to, to know exactly what's in the head of their, their date. And you, you really see this in the studies that have been done on flirting. Like 70% of flirting is completely lost on the intended target. The intended target has no idea they're being flirted with. So my belief is that the more direct and straightforward you are with your romantic interests, the better you will, you know, the, the better things are going to go for you romantically. 
I was struck reading the book that it seems like at the end of the day, uh, men and women probably just need to meet in the middle. And I make it sound like it's so easy to do. (laughs) (laughs) I I, I, I believe in five years, maybe it will be, but but you're right. We're in this transitional period where everything is kind of, uh, everybody's anxious. Right. I mean, I mean, basically humans like to be liked. Uh, you know, we, that's, that's pretty universal between men and women. We, we appreciate a certain, a certain amount of assertiveness sent our way, especially when it's, when it's wanted, but these are, it get, oh man, it gets, it gets so complicated so quickly. Yeah. No, I, um, I have a friend, Brian Howie, who's kind of a, kind of a, a comedian show producer. He, he has this traveling show called the great love debate. Um, and it's like kind of part town hall on the, on the current state of dating. And it's part comedy show. And in every great love debate, he, do, he sets up this um, experiment in which um, he kind of pulls a guy from the audience who claims he has game. And a woman from the audience who claims she's approachable and gives them like a minute or two and says, okay, okay, Mr. Mr. You've got game you have a minute or two to pick her up. Also, you have to pretend that you're in line at Starbucks. And I've been, and the way the great love debates are set up is that, you know, there's a few hundred people in the audience and there are a few experts on stage. And I've been kind of one of the quote unquote experts on stage for five or six of these shows. And I would say that in, Two of the six shows I've been on, um, the man ended up touching the woman in order to get her attention, like on her shoulder, arm, back, something like that. And Brian, in the kind of, there's always like a post-mortem, like with the audience about what, what transpired. And Brian always asks the women in the audience, well, what did you think of the touching? And it's kind of always the same. You know, one third of the women don't mind it. One third of the women hate it and consider it harassment. And one third of the women don't mind it as long as the guy is cute. Now, the problem, as I know, as I can see from your nodding, is that guys don't know whether or not they're touch worthy. And you end up in this in this kind of situation in which guys just don't know, like what might have been okay five years ago is not okay now. And I actually, after one of these sh- shows, I uh, the next morning I, I had a, a training session with my personal trainer and I, I was talking to, to her. She's a, a woman in her late twenties about all this. And, she's, and she immediately blurted out, oh, I love it if I'm at a party and a hot guy puts his arm around me, but if he's not hot, no way. But like, like guys don't know when it's okay. And I think that's probably good because I think it's better to err on the side of caution. But I don't think women realize that guys who might have been more assertive five, 10, 15 years ago are just kind of waiting for the women to be clearer in, in 2021. 
Well, exactly. I, I think again, it strikes me as a transaction, right? And I don't I don't think the responsibility lies strictly on either side, right? Like I don't think it's all up to women to just, yep. you know, to put out their boundaries. Obviously, men have a responsibility to to be intuitive and to and to be respectful and to anticipate proactively, you know, like what's gonna fly versus what isn't. But again, I, it's like any human problem, like communication is the key to, you know, arriving at, a, at an acceptable, sustainable solution. Yeah. My, I mean, my thing is like, I, I want to take the guesswork out of, da- out of dating and there's way too much guesswork in the current version of dating in which men and women are supposed to intuit what each other are thinking. And I'm all in favor of direct and honest and clear. Um, you know, and I have this a story I tell in the book about a young woman, young-ish woman I know, who um, you know, just as context, like she's not some random stranger. She was when she was in college. She was our like Saturday night babysitter for many years, so I, I know her reasonably well. And um, like the as context, what you need to know: yes, she's very attractive, but more importantly, she has a uh, an outsized personality. She probably should be doing stand up, like um, at comedy clubs. But you know, she's a social worker instead. But 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 as you know, some guys are in, intimidated by the whole extrovert thing, and this woman is an extreme extrovert. So I was telling her about my new book and she kind of interrupted and said, oh, I should tell you about how I met my new boyfriend. And she said that she was at a party. She and the guy were talking for half an hour, 45 minutes. Um, And she kind of likes kind of quirky guys, shy guys. But it was kind of clear that this guy didn't know what to do about it. So after a half an hour, 40 minutes, she just blurted out to him, so are you going to ask for my number? And, and that's all that was required. You know, she just needed to open the door wide enough for him to feel comfortable about walking through. She didn't have to grab his ass or buy him a beer or ask him out on a fancy date or anything like that. All she had to do was make him feel comfortable and feel safe about walking through that door and asking her out on a real date. Because at that point, after she said that, he knew that she liked her. And and that's the kind of thing I'm talking about. When I talk about making your move, I'm not, I mean, I mean the like kind of the rules mavens out there, like the, you know, they 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 conjure up this image of like some Corella Deville type chasing a guy down the street. You know, and that's not at all what I'm what I'm suggesting. No, it certainly sounds a lot more subtle than that. Yes, that might be actually a, a nice segue into the suitor's advantage. Uh, it's a really fascinating concept with some fancy math to back it up. Uh, John, can you outline the suitor's advantage and why it suggests that being assertive and picking a partner rather than waiting to be picked is the best strategy, uh, perhaps for either gender? Yeah. So, so, so this is not the suitor's advantage thing is not gender specific. Um, but but my argument is that one of the advantages that men have always had with traditional gender roles when it comes to dating is that at least we have an opportunity with our first choice. Like at, at the very least, you know, if there's a woman who you really, really, really like, you're allowed to ask her out on a date. And maybe she'll say yes, maybe she'll say no. But, but at least you get a definitive answer. 
whereas a woman, um, a woman kind of has to kind of send signals to her first choice guy that she really likes him. And as I said earlier, flirting doesn't really work. Like 70% of flirting is ineffective. So women out there in the dating world who abide by old fashioned dating rules, um, there's no guarantee they will ever actually get a chance with their first choice guy. And, you know, there's a a kind of semi-seriously joke in the book that that making the first move is the only dating dating strategy ever awarded a a Nobel Prize. And, um, And, you know, the... To be fair, this Nobel Prize wasn't really strictly about dating. It was about what economists call matching. And matching could involve everything from, yes, dating, but also school admissions, hiring, things like that. And what the what the economists who won this Nobel Prize found is that who whichever party initiates the match in the in the in this case, the the guy who makes the first move, or if it was a woman, the woman makes the first move, whoever initiates the match tends to achieve a better outcome. And this is true of dating. This is true of school admissions. This is true of hiring. Interesting. So yeah, and I think you do you have a really nice treatment of that in the book. I'd invite people to check that out for a little bit more in depth on that. It, it seems like it's a really interesting idea. I want to transition quickly to online dating. Uh, this consistently comes up in therapy as a major, major stressor. And some of the dynamics that I hear about repeatedly are people lying or exaggerating about themselves, uh, having to spend the first handful of dates fact-checking the person, basically, finding holes in their story, seeing if things add up, wondering about this, that, or the other thing. There's a lot of anxiety owing to ambiguity of the meaning of behavior. Like if somebody stops messaging, that can mean a million different things, right? But people (laughs) will ruminate themselves into a black, black hole about this. People check compulsively to see if the person still has a profile up after saying they're not ready for a relationship or things like that, or if they're in, if they're dating them currently, do they still have the profile up? I've also heard clients talk about the paradox of choice problem, where they wonder what if someone else better comes along, or they're wondering if the person they're dating is wondering the same thing, is somebody else better going to come along? John, what what does the data tell us about the effectiveness of online dating platforms? Are they, are they like social media in the sense that they're not inherently bad, but simply tools that can be used in effective or ineffective ways? Are, are there good and bad ways to use them? Do they actually help people establish successful relationships? So, Pete, before I launch into this, can I ask you a question? From just based from your your therapy practice, sure. Have you ever had a patient, and it could be either a man or a woman, tell you, "I love online dating. The people I meet are always so nice, and it's so easy to find true love on a dating app." I can say honestly, that has never happened. Have you ever even come close to that in a conversation with a, with a patient? No, I would say there's a big, I would say there's a begrudging acceptance as online dating as a modality or platform to to bump into people that are also looking to find a relationship, but really in a suboptimal way. Yeah, no, it, it amazes me because I, I have yet to meet the person who loves online dating, but at the same time there's this kind of fear of missing out 
factor that comes in, right? You're nodding like, like, yeah, yes. you've heard this, right? Yeah. Like the, they're worried that if they're not on six different dating apps, that their soulmate will end up with the wrong person, right? Is that, is that kind of what you hear from your patients? Yes, there is. And I think among what well, it obviously varies from client to client, but there's a lot of yeah. people feel that, man, there's a lot of sex happening out there and I'm missing out. Right. I'm missing out yeah. on that. You know, right. It's it, yeah, the, 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 the fear of missing out is over the top. Um, yet all the data on this shows that. Um, so, for example, um, the. The. You know, there was a Pew Research survey which came out about a year, year and a half ago. And it found that among younger women, um, a majority of, I think 55% of younger women said dating is harder now than it used to be. Um, a majority of young women on dating apps consider online dating to be unsafe. And 20% of younger women on dating apps have experienced threats of physical violence while on dating apps. Now, if there was a singles bar in New York or Austin, Texas or Portland, Oregon, where one out of every five women were being threatened with violence at that singles bar, nobody would ever go back, right? Of course. Of course not. Yet there's this kind of um, strange, I actually think it's an addiction. And actually this is probably more your area of expertise than mine. I think it's an addiction to these apps in which people are so fearful of not being on the apps that they are willingly expose themselves to people who they wouldn't want to be with um, and experiences that make them un uncomfortable. In other scenarios, I, I understand the whole trial by fire thing. Like if, if it was worth it in the end, if it was worth going through all these kind of awful dates and scary situations in order to find a true love who you never would have met in the real world, I'd be like, all right, might not be my cup of tea, but at least I understand the argument. Um, but there've been multiple studies on this and what the, on, on online dating. There's a professor at Pace University in New York who found that couples who meet online are basically half as likely to marry as couples who meet in the real world. There's another professor, um, at Stanford University, Michael Rosenfeld. And it's funny, if you Google Michael Rosenfeld, he generally has nice things to say about online dating. Yet if you kind of dig into, into, into his published research on this, and you go to table three in the appendix of his study, table three, you know, the, the headline is, breakup rates are not much influenced by how couples meet. Uh, all I can say is the Stanford professor and I have very different definitions of not much because what he found is that the, the one year breakup rate for couples who meet on dating apps is 16%. For couples who meet through friends and family, it's 9%. For couples who meet at neighbor, as neighbors, it's 8%. Meet as coworkers, again, my favorite way of meeting, 6%. 
you meet in college, 6%. And if you meet in the house of worship, the one-year breakup rate for those couples is 1%. So, like, not only have you got this kind of um, uh, safety issue related to online dating, but the relationships don't work out as well. So I, I'm, you know, this is why I'm, like, generally so negative online on online dating because I don't see the advantage. Those are really interesting data. Do you know, John, what are the active ingredients or maybe the active ingredient that is optimized across those situations such that you get better results with more of a kind of a proximity effect, if I can use that word? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm going to turn this back on you just to have some fun. Uh, Pete, do you have a best friend? I sure do. How did you meet your best friend? Uh, we met in grade two. In grade two. See, you met in the real world. And I'm guessing your shared experiences together are an important part of your relationship, correct? I'd say, exactly. I'd say we are part of each other's identity. Yes, yes. If that makes and, sense. Yes. And, and, and when you're together, how often do you tell and retell among yourselves and among friends these fun stories from, from your time together? Probably way too much. Way too much, exactly. And what I would tell, what I, my argument is that the telling and retelling of these how we met stories are not are are important actually, and that they they serve as kind of mortar to human relationships. Human beings connect and and bond through shared experience, like you and your and your best friend. And it's why it's like if you're if you watch a funny movie by yourself on Netflix, you are never going to laugh as loud as if you're in the theater with five of your best friends because shared experience is kind of the key to kind of human emotion and, and human connection. So if you wouldn't go on to bestfriends.com to find a best friend, why do you think it's such a great idea to go on to Tinder to find a connection, a romantic connection like that. No, that's a great point. And I want to throw an idea at you just came off the top of my head. Well, one, one of the things I've been wondering about with online dating is, let's say in your real life with all your preferences and characteristics and features and things like that, that's going to naturalistically craft a certain way of being or existing, which will naturally sort of bring you into contact with like minds or people with perhaps similar preferences, you know, things like that. And that may not always be a, a great thing, but it is a thing, I think. And I'm wondering if online dating kind of smashes people together who normally life would just never bring them together through sort of a, that sort of selection through preferences or things like that. What do you think about that sort of idea? Or is that just repackaging what you just said? Basically? No, I, I agree with you. I mean, I mean, not, I mean, to be fair, not every dating app has the same kind of platform, but, um, some of the dating apps, I'm just thinking of like Match and OkCupid off the top of my head. There's a lot of box checking that goes on, right? Like there's a lot of like, I, I want this, I want that. And to me, it's way too much like shopping. It's way too much like commerce in which you just end up checking off all the boxes in which you're just looking for an opposite sex version of yourself. And I'm not sure that, that, you know, like, I mean, 
if you met an opposite sex version of yourself at a party or at the beach or at a wedding, that person might not be so attractive to you. Whereas, whereas somebody who was different from you, but in an appeal, like, like I, I, I feel like the way that we click with each other isn't necessarily what we are, but opposite sex. And I, and I think like that, that, when it comes to a lot of these dating apps, um, what we think we want isn't exactly what we what we're going to connect with. I'm going to try and not go down a rabbit hole here, but there's a mode of therapy that I do called schema therapy, and it talks a lot about uh, schema chemistry that people have, where when we excite each other's core beliefs, that's where the chemistry kind of comes from. Now, of course, and really sort of, um, you know, tough clinical versions of this, you can get someone with borderline personality disorder will fit very nicely with someone who has narcissistic personality <laughs> disorder, right? Because they, 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 right. they really activate yeah. each other in that sort of way. But I do think at a more, in more subtle ways, that chemistry is something that you're not going to find in a checklist. It's just sort of in the, it, it's chemistry. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is like, this is my overall issue with online dating. I, I, it's not real life. I mean, you can, I mean, shopping for a used car is not the same thing as looking for a life partner. And again, if you, if you wouldn't go on an app to find a BFF, why would you think it's a great idea to go on an app to find somebody whom you want to spend the rest of your life with? And I, I, I just think like, Chemistry is unpredictable, and the most important part of any human relationship is shared experience, whether it's in the workplace or at the dog park or you go on the meetup.com and you're cleaning up like the beach together. Like you, you can tell so much about another human being just by being in their physical presence. And, I'm, and I don't know if you've had this experience with your patients, but how many patients do you have who've been out on first on online first dates with somebody whom they've never even spoke to over the phone? I'm going to say 50% of the time. I, I mean, I mean, doesn't that strike you as, I mean, I, I, I'm worried I'm falling into old fogey, you know, like <laughs> syndrome here, but there is just so much you can learn from somebody just from the sound of their voice, the intonation of their voice. I mean, I mean, I would rather actually meet in person, but, but at the very least talk to them over the phone before you, you actually go out on a date because there is just so much we can learn about each other just from the sound of their voice, and you can almost sense body language without even seeing it from how people speak. Yeah, no, exactly. I would, I would want to get in a situation where I would have all of those intuitive tools working for me as soon as right. possible, right? Sort of a fail fast kind of uh, paradigm. John, I want to ask you about the workplace because you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, and I think yeah. it was a really interesting idea. In a post-Me Too era, or perhaps we're still in a Me Too era, uh, how have progressive companies struck a balance between the reality of large groups of humans uh, of all sexual orientations, uh, you know, working together, but also respecting that for many, they simply want the workplace to be a workplace and, and not have to navigate being hit on things like this. So there's certain realities to navigate uh, on, on both ends. How have progressive companies worked to solve this conundrum? So can I preface this with the Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates story? Or do you want me to launch right into the... Uh... No, go for it. I, th I think that would provide a lot of interesting context. 
as I said before, I'm a big fan of um, of workplace romances, workplace dating. And it's not just like, I'm not pulling this out of my ass, so to speak. I mean, if you look at the data on this, 25 to 30% of couples who meet at work end up marrying. I mean, th that is a huge percentage. Um, and, and I don't think you need to like, it's kind of obvious why, because if you, I mean, all the couples I interviewed for Make Your Move, like before the first date, they already knew that they were pretty compatible, and which is a very different experience from people who are dating online, who have no idea who's going to walk in the front door of Sushi Palace or whatever their wherever their first date is. But with these with these workplace romances, the first date is almost an affirmation of what they already know. Um, so, um, and I talk about all these kind of high profile couples who, um, who met at work, you know, Bar you know, Barack Obama and Michelle Obama. I think, I think Michelle Obama was Barack's supervisor at his law firm summer job. Um, and Bill and, Bill and Melinda Gates are another, I mean, Bill was obviously the, or some, I, I think obviously the CEO of Microsoft and Melinda, as probably many people know, was a manager at Microsoft um, before they started dating. And I, over the course of my research with Make Your Move, I came across this interview, podcast interview that Melinda Gates gave about how Bill first asked her out. And I'm probably a little bit older than you, Pete, but but we're probably close enough age-wise that that when I heard the story, I'm like, oh, this is a cute story. But I'm not so sure it would be as cute today. But I'm gonna just read to you, you know, what Melinda Gates said about how how they started dating. Um, so according to Melinda, he said, uh, he called her and he said, you know, I was thinking maybe we could go out if you give me your phone number, maybe two weeks from tonight, Melinda said in this podcast. And then and this was 1987, I think. And she did what any self-respecting 1980s woman would have done, which is play hard to get. So her response, and this is quoting from her, I said to him, two weeks from tonight, I have no idea what I'm doing two weeks from tonight. And I said, you're not spontaneous enough for me. So Bill, however, decided not to take no for an answer. And then this is, this is Melinda's comment on what happened next. It was really sweet, she said. He called an hour later and said, is this spontaneous enough for you? Now, I, I, I mean, to me, I think this is a nice story. I don't think Bill Gates is some kind of a creepy stalker type. Uh, everybody I know who knows him tells me he's a nice man. I mean, I don't know if he's, a, you know, if he's like business, I don't know if he's a genius when it comes to, you know, uh, social policy or anybody, but I, 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 don't, I don't think he's a terrible person. I don't think he was stalking her. I think you can kind of, in the context of the time, I, I don't think that was unreasonable. However, if you look at it from today's context, here you have the CEO of a, even in 1987, a major company, asking out a younger employee who works for him on a date. She said no. 
And then he calls her back an hour later to ask her out on a date again. Again, there's a happy ending to this story. I, 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 I don't think ill of either Bill or Melinda Gates as a result of this. But I, I think the, the, the point here is times have changed. I mean, Pete, you agree with me. Like what, what might have been okay in 87 is not okay in 2001, right? Yeah, agreed. And probably for a lot of good reasons. Yes, I, 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 I'm with you. So um, to this point, um, two of the largest tech companies in Silicon Valley, Facebook and Google, have in my mind come up with the really good solutions to this kind of workplace dating problem. And they have workplace dating rules, which, which say that you can ask anybody out on a date once, but only once. And um, if you get any answer back, you know, that's not an explicit yes, it counts as a no. So if you ask a guy out on a date and he says, oh, I'm busy on a Tuesday, or if you ask a woman out on a date and she says, oh, I'm not feeling well, all of those things count as no's. Um, and if you ask the second time, I think you're, you're fired. And, and I really feel like this is, an, this is a really smart solution because it kind of cuts down or hopefully eliminates the, the pestering and uh, everything else that's involved with workplace dating. It, you get one chance, anything that anything that's not clear yes is a no. But at the same time, it, it respects the idea that, that people who meet at work know each other well and might have realized that they're compatible and there are, there are valuable relationships that can be formed in the workplace. So I think it, it's important not to kind of clamp down on that entirely, but I think this is kind of a, a smart solution that kind of, I mean, I mean there may be other, other tweaks, but I, I, I think, I think, you know, you know, I'm not all like, I, I'm sure lots of people aren't eager to give Google or Facebook credit for corporate policy, but I kind of feel like in this case, they've, they've hit on the right idea. No, I agree. I think, I think that's a great solution in the face of a very complicated problem. Like the reality is, I don't think you can stop human desire. People are going to date. It's just going to be in a clandestine fashion. Right. You know, why not, you know, maybe not embrace, but why not provide a framework by which people can explore that, but have it so that people feel protected and safe? I mean, it seems like a good balance between all the competing tensions around this. Do you have any, do you have any friends who met at work or couples? So I mostly know psychologists and many of them uh, meet in grad school. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I, it's not, a, I know many, many psychologists who are couples and, uh, yeah. you know, because you, I, and I, I actually in grad school in the workplace, there's a lot of overlap there. Yeah. I would, I yeah. would regard them as essentially similar, if not identical environments in, in, in many ways. Right. And I'm sure that, that before they went out on their first date, it wasn't like a leap to think that they would work out. Right. right. Well, why, why would they even go on the first date in the first place? Right. There must be right. an established track record of interactions that suggests that, Hey, maybe there's something here to, to explore. Right. Right. And then the other thing, and I, and I, I'm just circling back to my reservations about online dating is that when your grad school friends went out on the first date, and I think this really applies more to the woman than the man. Yeah. I, 
I mean, obviously there are always going to be safety concerns when it comes to women, but I'm, but I feel like they are mitigated to some ex extent. If the guy they're going out on a first date with is a friend of a friend or a classmate or somebody to whom they are, he is accountable to other people in her circle of friends, not a complete stranger. If he behaves badly, does something terrible, um, it's not like, it's not gonna, like, I mean, there will be repercussions. And I, I mean, the, the reason why, one of the reasons why I believe these online relationships don't work out as well is because this kind of accountability doesn't exist. And, um, you know, when, I, if you go into a first date with kind of a high level of anxiety, about whether he's lying to me, about whether he's married or looking for a relationship, whether he's lying to me about his job. Um, if the day before your first date began with all sorts of fact checking and Googling to make sure who he said he is, and the morning of your first date, you are creating escape plans with your roommate or your best friend or your mom or your sister. I I, I totally, I, I mean, given all the horror stories out there, I totally understand why women do that. But that kind of thing is not conducive to, you know, falling in like or falling in love. And I think this is why couples who know each other in the real, real world fare better because particularly from the woman's perspective, there isn't this level of extreme anxiety that is, um, like there's a woman I interviewed for Make Your Move who told me that she, she went into every first date trying to poke holes in the guy's story. And for this reason, she called this a, she called online dating a doubter's game. And I took, and I, and, but, but, the, but, but even she acknowledged if you go into a first date thinking it's a doubter's game, you're not going to feel a connection. No, for sure. I mean, when your fight or flight system is up and running, that's not an optimal time to forge an attachment or a connection or, or probably even have a reasonable assessment of somebody because right. you know, we have confirmation yeah. bias, right? Like we look for, we want our anxieties to be confirmed in many ways. So if you're looking for something, you'll probably find it if you pick anyone uh, apart enough. Right. And I'm not saying that going out on a date with a coworker or, or a guy you met at the dog park, I mean, obviously he could turn out to be a monster as well, but I, 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 I mean, we're playing the odds here, right? Like, and I just think somebody who is in your circle of friends, it's much easier to have a comfort level with than somebody who is a complete stranger. And now, and, and again, I know I'm older than you, or I think I'm older than you, but when I was single, a blind date with a complete stranger was rare. Nowadays, a blind date with a complete stranger is commonplace. And I do not think that's a good thing. John, for either gender, what does the data tell us about prioritizing establishing a career versus forming a relationship? I've personally never seen the logic in this. In reality, most people simply don't have the ability to predict that far out into the future. There's always the possibility of chance meetings that you can't count on, or most people can't defer feelings in a way that would accurately you know, map this idea of deferring a relationship in the service of a career. Life just happens uh, in many instances. In my experience, people will move mountains to be with someone who they love. 
So what do you think about the idea of people prioritizing careers over relationships or, or marriage? Also, I'm wondering about the idea, could focusing on your career really be a socially sanctioned form of avoidance for some people? I don't know. I mean, you might have a better insight than me as a therapist about whether it's avoidance or not. I, I just think a lot of young people just assume the advice they get from older folks is the right advice, whether it's a mentor at work or their parents or their older sister, brother, whatever. And um, I just think a lot of Gen Zers, millennials, I think this is more women than men, but I, I suspect men get the same advice. That, that, that there's this notion out there that your 20s are for career, grad school, professional advancement, and that a relationship and God forbid marriage would be a distraction from all of your career and professional goals, which obviously are far more important than um, than a life partner. And I kind of feel like this has become the accepted wisdom. And, and I don't want to push back on it too much because I, I personally don't believe that you have to get married in order to lead a happy life. Um, you know, if you're, if you put a far high, higher priority on saving lives in the ER or teaching the next generation of cellists or guitar players, um, you know, great. Like, like it, if that's your thing, do it. But my sense, and I'd be interested to hear what you have to say, is there, there are a lot of people out there who actually do put a very high priority on marriage, but don't live their lives that way. Um, and my feeling is, look, if you if 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 marriage and family is a very high priority for you, live your life that way. And if somebody tells you you need to wait till 31 to find a boyfriend or a fiance or a husband, you might want to ask, well, why is that? You might want to fact check all the arguments behind that belief, because I you know, we can talk about this more, but I don't see any evidence that putting off getting serious about dating until you're 30 actually has any big advantages. Yeah, I don't think there's any formula that's, you know, that we can find in a book that would give us an answer around this, right? Like I, with clients, we try to take what's called like, you know, a values driven approach. And sometimes those values can be in, in competition or tension with one another. And the trick or the name of the game, I think, is knitting those values together in a way that works. So you can hold a value around marriage. You can also hold a value around achievement or career. It's, it's not one or the other. It's how do you knit them together? I would also say, too, you know, if I think about my journey through graduate school or some of the respecialization work that I did, I mean, I, I found the social support from my marriage to be an incredibly important part of being able to have those achievements. And I'm not saying that would be the case for everybody, but I think having someone along for the ride during a difficult career undertaking can be incredibly um, supportive and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as you, as you obviously know, having read the book is that, that one, you might kind of explore this topic, like, well, well, is there any, is there any legitimacy, any proof to this idea that a boyfriend or husband will hold you back? And uh, a couple observations on this one, the top five women in fortune magazines, most powerful women list all got married in their mid or early twenties. 
Also, there was a study out of Harvard, but done by Alexander Kilowald, who's kind of a prominent professor there. And she found that, that, um, that controlling for all sorts of external factors like you know, age, race, profession, children, non-children. But if you, if you control for all the ex, you know, externalities, um, married women out-earn their single peers by about three and a half, four percent which sounds totally counterintuitive because particularly with young women, they're told that, that, that you're not going to succeed professionally if you have a guy distracting you. But as far as I can tell, there isn't much evidence to support that. Now, if we're talking about kids, yes, yes. I, I, I mean, the, the, the data shows that the children, uh, you know, are kind of a, um, a problem when it comes to earnings and uh, and career progression, but the thing I would point out is that in the U.S., I think forty percent of children are born to unmarried women. I believe if you if you went to Western Europe, I think it's a majority. So I think we're well beyond the point where you have to assume that that marriage and children go together, or that singledom and non-children go together. I think these are, these are now separate issues. John, conventional wisdom has been that there are certain immutable dynamics with respect to dating that must be adhered to. For example, men should generally date younger women. Women should not date men who are less educated than them. Women shouldn't propose to men. Uh, what does the data tell us about these patterns? And you know, what are your suggestions for getting beyond these pattern stereotypes? So I'm I'm a big advocate of women dating younger men, and I I honestly believe that because of what I call the college gender gap, this phenomenon of you know 30 35 percent more women than men graduating from college, what happens is you have these guys who are have good jobs or not bad looking, if they remain never married into their mid and late 40s. I, I th this is an exaggeration, but it's kind of a fair exaggeration. I, I almost think they become un unmarriageable because they um, they're so warped by the college gender gap, and they've had so many women chasing after them um, that they think they are worthy and deserving of all this female attention. And I honestly, and I just there's all this research showing that older singles have a harder time adapting their lifestyle to a new person. Whereas somebody in their twenties, we're all, we're kind of, we're like a, a ball of clay. That's like, you know, we're more adaptable when we're younger. And I, I believe that like a lot of like, you know, and I tell some stories like this and make your move that there, that a woman in her mid thirties who's struggling with dating guys, her age, or maybe, 40 might be better off dipping down into to dating guys in their late 20s because believe it or not those guys in their late 20s may actually be more marriage-minded than the 40-year-old who she's been dating for five years but keeps insisting he's not ready. And uh, just a quick thought on uh, women proposing to men. I thought that was a really interesting idea that you had in the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I like, I, I mean, I spend 
more time than I probably should on social media. And if you spend enough time on Twitter and, and uh, Instagram and probably others, uh, I mean, you see lately in particular, I've seen all these wonderful um, proposal videos, usually with, you know, um, you know, millennial women proposing to their guys. And I see these more and more every day. And um, me, me, if a woman can, you know, if Angela Merkel can run Germany and women can be the CEOs of Xerox and General Motors and all these other companies, um, and if women can be the Speaker of the House in, in the, uh, you know, in Congress, are we really going to tell women, well, you can do all these amazing things, but God forbid you propose to your boyfriend? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but in the in the in my book, make your move. I mean, while I'm all in favor of women proposing generally, I should say that the the, the chapter deals with a very specific problem, which is um, what I call the reluctant groom problem, which is women who've been dating, who've been maybe living with a guy or had the same boyfriend for several years. She's ready to get married but he keeps insisting he's not ready. And in my first book, Datanomics, my solution was a marriage ultimatum. And honestly, I, I, it wasn't long after, after Datanomics came out that I had some regrets about that advice because the thing about guys is like, we don't love being told what to do. <laughs> <laughs> we don't love being bossed around. And sometimes we react especially badly to being bossed around, even in situations that maybe we shouldn't get over, over you know, worked up about it. Yeah. Um, but which is why I really believe, look, if you, the, the much better solution is just, is to just ask your guy to marry you because a marriage proposal is not a demand. It's kind of a, um, it's an act of love. It's a, a question in which you want to, do you want to spend the rest of your life with me? It's not a, it's not the kind of thing where it's like a marry me or else, or put a ring on it or else. And again, this may be a male flaw, but like I, I've, you know, I, I, men just don't react as well to being bossed around as maybe we should. I, I, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we, we can add that to the list of male flaws. <laughs> male flaws. But, 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 but I mean, do you agree with me that like that the, the men sometimes overreact to being told what to do? Oh, for sure. Yeah. When, when men feel shame and vulnerable, they react with grandiosity and, and, and pushback. Right? Yes. So, so, so being, being a woman asking him to marry her is a very different, different conversation than saying, I want to get married. You need to propose to me by June 1st or else. Yeah, exactly. Th those are very different conversations. Absolutely. John, do the principles we've discussed today apply to same-sex couples or transgendered singles? Any caveats that you, you want to mention around this? I mean, the, my, my books tend to focus on hetero dating, not because... I'm trying to, I'm not interested in same-sex dating, um, but just because the, 
the college gender gap, which I wrote about in Datanomics, doesn't really impact same-sex dating. And I know this is stating the obvious, but I'm just going to just say it anyway. Like, gay men don't care how many or how few women there are in the dating pool. The same way queer women do not care how many or how few men there are in the dating pool. So the problem that I identified in datanomics and that I try to solve and make your move does not really affect same-sex dating. However, there's a, there's a young, um, a young comedian screenwriter out in Hollywood, a woman by the name of Quinn Marcus, who um, I've been collaborating with, and she's she's working on turning my first book, Datanomics, into something of a of a screenplay. And you know, Quinn and I, Quinn is lovely, and we've had a whole bunch of conversations about this. And we were talking about the women making the first move thing and how it's kind of a a challenge to traditional gender roles. And one of the things that Quinn told me is that her first college girlfriend, um, she told me that, that she and her girlfriend were sleeping in the same together for, same bed together for months before either one of them kissed each other. And, and I think you know, her explanation was that they were both kind of abiding by traditional female gender roles in which somebody else is supposed to make the first move. So when it comes to queer women dating, and, and she, you know, I, I'm not saying this is, yeah, I, this is not my area of expertise and I, I don't want to like speak for all queer women, but from what Quinn told me, I think this is a little bit of an issue in which um, when women date other women, there's some uncertainty about who's supposed to make the first move. And I just thought she had this hilarious story about she and her girlfriend, you know, being in the same bed together for months before either one of them actually did anything about it. John, if people want to learn more, where can they go? So um, you can go to my website, johnberger.com. And I, I should mention that my name is spelled oddly. It's J-O-N and then B-I-R-G-E-R. Uh, so johnberger.com. You can find me on Twitter, John, at johnberger1. Um, on Instagram, I wish it was the same as Twitter, but it's not. It's at, it's, it's johnberger underscore, it's john underscore burger one on, on Instagram. And then finally, if you have a book group and you want to read um, Make Your Move uh, or you are reading Make Your Move or Datanomics and you'd like to have me talk to your book group, book group remotely, um, I've partnered with a platform called bookyaya.com, which connects authors with book groups. And if you'd like me to talk to your book group, you can, you can go to bookyaya.com or there's more information about that on my own website as well. Excellent. Well, John, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, you've been very, very generous in answering all my questions. And uh, I really enjoyed this, uh, this conversation. It's such a fascinating topic. And I'm sure it's one uh, we could discuss for hours. But for the moment, we'll leave it there. Great. Thank you, Pete, for having me on. Thank you so much. Take good care. Well, I really hope that you enjoyed the podcast as much as I did. If you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. And now for the mandatory disclaimer. This podcast represents the opinions of Dr. Kelly and that of his guests. Content of the podcast should not be taken as psychological advice and is for general information only. 
Please consult your mental health professional for any specific questions around your psychological health. In no way does listening to our content establish a psychologist-client relationship. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. All people, places, and scenarios mentioned in the podcast have been changed to protect patient confidentiality. Finally, this podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing a standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast.